Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. You'll need a Bible to follow along. The guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. So get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you. And keep that Bible as our gift. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Bring it back with you each week as we look at Scripture together each Sunday. That's marked for you at Ephesians chapter 6. According to the TV preachers on cable, for you to get healed from any disease is as easy as one, two, three. First, number one, if you're sick, recognize it's your own fault. Second, your answer is not in medicine. Medicine is not God's highest or best, according to one of the TV charlatans, Fred Price. He says, use your faith and then you won't need the medication. And he elaborates, doctors are fighting the same enemies that we are. The only difference is they're using toothpicks and we're using atomic bombs. Then third... If you don't have enough faith, God has raised up a special class of anointed faith healers who can do the job for you. Kenneth Hagin claimed to be one of those anointed healers. I say claimed because he's now deceased, having died, ironically, of a, of a disease. And in his book, I believe in visions, he tells the story of how He's been miraculously used to heal people of their sicknesses. In each case, the problem was demonic. On one occasion, scarcely a month after Jesus appeared to him, Hagen healed a young girl of cancer of the left lung. It all happened one day while he was in the midst of a healing service. Suddenly, he says, quote, The Spirit of God enveloped me like a cloud. The young girl and I were standing in the midst of the white cloud. As I looked at her, I saw fastened to the outside of her body, over her left lung, an evil spirit or an imp. He looked very similar to a small monkey. Hagen healed the girl by casting out the evil spirit. According to Hagen, the demon fell to the floor, then ran down the aisle of the church and out the door. He also tells the story of how, on another occasion, God permitted him to see into the realm of the spirit. This time he saw an evil spirit sitting on a man's shoulder. The spirit's arms, he said, were around the man's head in an arm lock. Immediately, Hagen sprang into action. He commanded the spirit to leave in the name of Jesus, and the man was miraculously healed. These stories should make it clear that in faith lore, faith healing lore... Demons are not only behind every bush, they're behind every disease. That's why you can tune into so-called Christian television on virtually any given day and you can hear faith healers screaming at demons. Here's a transcript of Robert Tilton raging at what he believes to be the demonic forces attacking his followers in TV land. He says, Satan, you demonic spirits of AIDS and AIDS virus, I bind you. You demon spirits of cancer, arthritis, infection, migraine, headaches, pain, come out of that body. Come out of that child. Come out of that man. Satan, I bind you. You foul demon spirits of sickness and disease, infirmities in the inner ear and lungs and the back. You demon spirits of arthritis, sickness and disease. You tormenting infirm spirits in the stomach. Satan, I bind you. You nicotine spirits, I bind you in the name of Jesus. 
So you've got a demon for everything. Now, one might wonder what the demon of nicotine was doing before cigarettes were invented. (laughs) But nonetheless, there's a demon for everything. Power encounters were, in fact, seen in the time of Jesus and for a time in the lives of the apostles. But as we saw two weeks ago in our series, Myths That Christians Believe, these were rare in history, and they were rare including in biblical times. In fact, they were beginning to wane even as the New Testament was being written. And so when you watch Christian cable television and you see people like Kenneth Copeland, the disciple of Hagen, and you see people like Robert Tilton and Fred Price, and on it goes... These people are doing something that the New Testament does not do as church history goes forward in the first century. Paul tells Timothy to take medication rather than healing Timothy. Go figure. The writer of Hebrews, writing the the book of Hebrews at a later time in the first century, after these gifts are beginning to wane, as he talks about Who did miracles? He says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4, that the message of the gospel was confirmed by signs and wonders done by those who heard him. That would be the apostles. Notice, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, we've got people doing that now. But they did that. It was beginning to wane even as the New Testament era was coming to a close. And in the most complete description of spiritual warfare in all the Bible, power encounters are completely absent. The most complete description of spiritual warfare in the entire Bible is in the passage to which I've asked you to turn in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after having after have you done everything to stand? Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Today we're going to see the weapons that God has given to us to engage in spiritual warfare. They're not power encounters, they're what we just read. Let's ask God to help us then to appropriate what he teaches us. Our Father, we thank you that you, in your sovereign providence, have arranged our circumstances so that we can be here now before you, with your people, with our Bibles open. To look at what you tell us about this important issue of spiritual warfare. 
We ask you, Lord, then, to help us to have attentive minds and open hearts. And may we see your truth and apply your truth in our lives so that we can better glorify you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I encourage you to take the outline that's inserted in your program for today's message out, if you don't have that out already, so that you can follow along. And I say there, first of all, that our battle against the spirit world is God-centered. Our battle against the spirit world is God-centered. Do we have that, guys? Now, when I say spirit world, I include both good spiritual forces and evil ones. But, of course, our battle is against evil spiritual forces. And in that battle, it's God who takes center stage. We saw two weeks ago in this series, as Martin Luther said, quote, even the devil is God's devil. Meaning that Satan is a created being. He's a created being with limited power who operates on a leash And the length of that leash is determined completely and solely by God. So we don't believe in a heresy called dualism, as if you have two equal competing forces, one good and one evil. Indeed, we have two forces, but they are anything but equal. Our battle against the spirit world, against the evil spirit world, is God-centered. And I say in your outline that our God provides the armor for this battle. Now, it's quite possible that the vivid description that we just read from Ephesians chapter 6 from the Apostle Paul may stem from the fact that while writing the letter to the church at Ephesus, he was under house arrest, guarded by a Roman soldier. In all likelihood, he wrote the book of Ephesians from the city of Rome, And Acts chapter 28 tells us this. When he got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. And so as Paul goes through now, he describes these pieces of armor. Paul's familiar with the armor of a Roman soldier. And in verse 14, he says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And what I'm going to do is quickly go through these six pieces of armor as they would have been understood in Paul's day and worn by a Roman soldier. But then we'll talk about what those have to do with God providing this armor. But the first one is this belt of truth, which was an apron that hung under the armor that protected the soldier's thighs. And it was also used to fasten articles of clothing or tuck in the long skirts of a robe for greater freedom of movement. The belt of truth. And then verse 14 says, take the breastplate of righteousness. Stand firm with the breastplate of righteousness in place. The second century B.C. Greek historian Polybius wrote that the common soldier had a brass breastplate covering his chest to protect his heart. Verse 15 says that this armor includes having your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Roman soldiers wore heavy, low half boots with soles that were made of several layers of leather averaging about three-quarters of an inch thick, and they were studded with spikes. They were tied by leather thongs halfway up the shin, and they were stuffed with wool or fur in cold weather. These were not running shoes, 
but rather they were ones that were able to dig in with the spikes and stand against the enemy. Verse 16 says, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith. Now, the first three pieces of armor had to be fastened to the body, but now believers are to take up the shield of faith. Polybius describes the shield as having a convex surface that measured two and a half feet by four feet and a hand's breadth in thickness. It was made of two wood planks glued together with the outer surface covered first with canvas and then with calfskin leather. There was metal on the top and the bottom edges to protect the wood when it hit the ground. And on the center front, there was an iron boss causing most stones and heavy arrows to glance off. The shield not only covered the body, but also the other parts of the armor that have already been described. The breastplate, the belt, even the boots. And that's why Paul uses the phrase, in addition to all of this now, you have this kind of overall covering. Verse 16 goes on to say that with that shield of faith, you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. These arrows could be shot from a bow and they could be wrapped with a tar-like substance and ignited, making them flaming arrows. The skins and the hides that were applied to the covering of the of the shield would extinguish the arrows, preventing the wood from catching fire. And in addition to that, before battle, the shields were immersed in water, soaking the leather cover and the canvas beneath that leather cover, which also aided in extinguishing those flaming arrows. Verse 17 says, take the helmet of salvation. Now that word take could actually mean grab Grab the helmet of salvation, since the context seems to indicate that the last thing a soldier does is grab his helmet and his sword, also spoken of, as we'll see in a minute in verse 17. He would grab those when he sees an approaching enemy. In Roman times, the soldier's helmet had various shapes at different times and places, but it generally was made of bronze, and it was fitted over an iron skull cap that was lined with leather or cloth. It covered the back of the neck. It fitted slightly over the shoulder. A brow ridge fitted above the face in order to protect the nose and eyes. And hinged cheek pieces were fastened by a chin band to protect the face. And then verse 17 says, and take or grab the sword of the spirit. The second item to be grabbed just before the attacks of the devil and his armies is the sword. The double-edged blade of the sword was two inches wide and two feet long, and it could be used to as a, a cut-and-thrust weapon when the soldier was involved in close hand-to-hand combat. It was placed in a sheath that was attached to that belt, mentioned earlier, the belt of truth, on the right side of the body so it would be clear of the shield-bearing left arm and not become entangled with the soldier's legs. And this of the six is the only offensive weapon of the armor that's mentioned. All the other five are defensive pieces of armor. Now, as you've read through those over the years and you've heard about those, have you ever wondered like I have? 
Why can't those be interchangeable? Why can't they be moved around a bit? So why can't it be the breastplate of truth and the belt of righteousness, for instance? Well, the reason for that is because of the spiritual qualities that these pieces of armor consist of were not adopted by Paul out of his imagination. They were not taken haphazardly, but rather he actually got those from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And all of those actually describe attributes of God himself in the first part of your Bible. I'd like to go through that with you and show you that each of these is actually attributed as characteristics of our God in the first part of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 11 says, Faithfulness will be the sash around his waist. Now, in our passage, it says, Take the the belt of truth. This says what's put around the waist is is faithfulness. But here's what's interesting about that. You know that the first part of your Bible was written in Hebrew. But in about 250 B.C., there was a Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament called the Septuagint. And in that Greek translation, the Greek word that's used for faithfulness in Isaiah 11 and verse 5 is aletheia. That's the same Greek word used in Ephesians chapter 6 for truth. And so here, the sash around the waist is a sash of truth that God takes on. When it says it will be the sash around his waist, it's referring to the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And so this belt of truth will be his. Now, we believers have tied the belt of God's truth to ourselves so that it's become, in effect, part of us. And this enables us to be reliable and faithful as God is reliable and faithful. This piece of armor is basic to all the other pieces because truth and trustworthiness are basic to all the other qualities that we need in order to withstand spiritual attacks. So truth comes first in Paul's list, but it's something that's an attribute of the Messiah himself. And then you have the breastplate of righteousness. And Isaiah again tells us in chapter 59, God put on righteousness as his breastplate. Christians are, by appropriating God's righteousness, to act righteously in our daily dealings with God and with others. And as a soldier's breastplate protected his chest from enemy attacks, so righteous living guards believers' hearts against the assaults of the devil. And then you have this third piece of armor, the the shoes, the half boots that are worn on the feet. Isaiah 52, speaking again of the Messiah, says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So the Messiah comes preaching the good news of who he is and what he's done, the good news of the kingdom. And Christians are ready, says Ephesians chapter 6, or prepared to stand against the onslaughts of evil forces because we are firmly grounded in the gospel, it says in Ephesians 6, the gospel of peace. This is what gives us our sure-footedness. It's the tranquility of mind and the security of heart in the gospel of peace that gives us readiness to stand against the devil and against his demons. But again, this is something that comes from God comes from the Messiah. And then there's the shield of faith that produces faithfulness in God's people. Psalm 91 says, His faithfulness will be your 
shield. Faith protects us from Satan's attacks because faith or belief, that's what the word means in your New Testament, faith and belief are interchangeable. Faith takes hold of the power and protection of God himself. That's why Proverbs 30 says God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Then there's the helmet of salvation. Again, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 59, he spoke of God taking on the breastplate of of putting on a righteousness as his breastplate in that same verse says this, God put on the helmet of salvation on his head. Now, in the preceding chapters of Isaiah, before chapter 59, those chapters describe God's promise to deal with the physical enemies of his people, especially the nation Babylon. But now the prophet describes God coming to deal with the far greater and more dangerous enemy of their souls, namely sin. It's because God's people have no righteousness of their own to bring. Friends, our best righteousness, apart from God's help, are nothing more than filthy garments, says the same prophet Isaiah in chapter 64 and verse 6. And if the Lord were to deal with his people according to their own deeds, there would be nothing to for us to anticipate except fearful judgment from God. But Isaiah declares that God would not come as a wrathful judge. Instead, he would come as our redeemer to bring salvation. And then there's the sword of the spirit. Again, Isaiah. The Lord made my mouth like a sharpened sword. And just as Jesus resisted temptation by use of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, that's precisely what we're to do. Do you remember in Matthew chapter four, Satan tempted Jesus three times and each time Jesus replied by giving back the word of God, the word of God in truth and in context. Now, all of that is God centered. These are attributes of God that are these pieces of armor that we are to take on, and all of them are supplied to us by God. What it means, friends, is there is no enemy. There is no enemy in the universe that can overtake you with the armor that God supplies himself. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, the same Apostle Paul who wrote Ephesians 6 tells us if God is for us, Who can be against us? If we belong to God, that's the if portion. If we belong to God. It's not a question as to whether or not God will be for his people. The question is, are we one of God's people? But if we are one of God's people, then if God is for us, then no one can be against us. doesn't mean that no one is against us. It means that they don't matter. It means that no one can bring successfully an attack against God's people. And so please understand that our spiritual battle, our battle against the spirit world is God-centered. And it's our God who provides the armor for this battle. I say in your outline as well, our God not only provides the armor, he pummels the adversary. I mean, really, God toys with Satan. He made Satan. 
He uses Satan for his own purposes. Satan only can act by permission of Almighty God. He's not on the loose. He's on a leash. And our God pummels him. And we see an example of that in this famous passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is talking about being caught up into the third heaven and seeing surpassing visions and revelations from God, things that he can't even describe, he says there, too marvelous for him. And then Paul goes on to say that there was a thorn in his flesh that was given him. And that thorn in his flesh that was given him is connected to the fact that he had these revelations given to him by God. He says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now you read that and you think, okay, you could easily think, if you haven't read the rest of the Bible and the fact that the devil is God's devil and on God's leash, you might think that Satan just independently does this, does this work and did this work to Paul. But I encourage you to ask yourself the question, who is it that ultimately gave Paul this thorn? Well, one way for you to answer that is to think about who it is that Paul asked to take it away. He says, I pleaded with the Lord three times. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So he went to the Lord. But also, I want you to note this. At the beginning of that verse, here's what Paul says. The reason I was given this thorn in my flesh was to keep me from becoming conceited. To keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Now, does Satan ever do anything to keep you from being conceited? As a matter of fact, Satan is the father of deceit and conceit. Satan does not want to keep us from being conceited. It's God who does that. Satan wants us to be conceited. It's God who ultimately gave this thorn, just as it was God who ultimately brought Job to the attention of Satan in the book of Job and used Satan to carry out God's work. He's doing the same now here with Paul. John Piper sometimes says weird things. But much more often, thankfully, he says profound things. And he says this. God uses demons to undo the design of the father of demons. God uses Satan to defeat the purposes of Satan. And he says, this is not an exceptional take like, whoa, that's an eccentric view. This is not exceptional. He did it with Job. He did it with Judas. He did it with Paul. And he'll do it with you. What happened when Satan entered into Judas? When Satan entered into Judas, he, Judas, handed Jesus over to be crucified. And what happened when Jesus was crucified? So here is Satan using Judas, but ultimately behind it all, it's God using Satan to accomplish God's purposes. Because what happened? Two weeks ago, I put on the screen for you this verse from Colossians chapter 2. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The death of Jesus disarmed Satan. 
in his warfare against God's people. It stripped him of one of his most damning weapons, namely unforgiven sin. Who should bring any charge against God's elect? It's God's who justifies. Who is it that condemns? It's Jesus Christ who died. So none of your accusations stick anymore, Satan. You've been stripped of the one weapon with which you could damn us, unforgiven sin, but you can do so no more. When Satan entered Judas, he signed his own death warrant with the blood of Jesus. Just stop and think about that. Satan enters Judas. Satan uses Judas. But he uses Judas in exactly the way that God designed to defeat Satan. The suicide of Judas was symbolic of the suicide of Satan. And over and over again in the history of God's people, God shames Satan as a suicidal fool in the service of salvation. Over and over and over again, praise be to our God. And let me tell you something, friends. You'll never hear what I just said on cable TV with the charlatan preachers. They have to make Satan an equal enemy to keep the money coming. And that's what God is doing, was doing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He was putting Satan to work for Paul's protection from pride. He was putting the father of all pride to work to destroy pride in God's apostle. Isn't it amazing the way God works? Our battle against the spirit world is God-centered. And, I say in your outline, it's word-centered. God-centered and word-centered. Now, in this section, in this final message, in this five-week, six-week topical series on myths that Christians believe about the Holy Spirit and angels and demons. What I want to do is show how over the previous five weeks we've demonstrated that the work of the spirit world is all known and is all combated by the word of God. So I'm going to recapitulate, I'm going to summarize the messages that we have seen previously in this series fairly quickly. If you've not been here for those prior five messages, those are all on our website. I encourage you to listen to those when you can. I say, first of all, in your outline, the Spirit has revealed truth by it. The Spirit has revealed truth by the Word. So we know truth exclusively by what has been revealed, by what has been made known, and it's been made known and provided to us in the Word of God. We saw that in the very first message in this series. And we saw that the Spirit gave us His Word through special emissaries selected by God called apostles. He revealed that truth to the apostles and not to us. So the night before that Jesus died, in the upper room discourse where he spoke to his 12 apostles, from 
John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, all of those, all five of those chapters on that one single night. Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse 26 that the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. He's going to guide you into all truth. Now, who is the you that he's talking to? He's going to guide you into all truth. He's talking to those 12 guys. He's going to guide them into all truth. Jesus is promising them, yes, I'm going to die tomorrow, but I'm not going to leave you. But rather, my presence is going to be through God, the Holy Spirit, and God, the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. And then later in that discourse, in chapter 16 and verse 13, Jesus says to them, the Holy Spirit is going to bring to your remembrance everything that I have commanded you. So that now they can go and commit it to writing. They can go and proclaim it. They can go and give it to associates of theirs, like Peter did to Mark, so that Mark could write the Gospel of Mark. The Spirit has revealed His truth in His Word, given to us by the apostles. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You know that this is a unique group, specially chosen by God, because they are called in Scripture just the twelve. And people know who you're talking about. The twelve. When Judas did as God had planned from eternity, that he would betray Jesus, then they became the eleven. And then in Acts chapter 1, they sought a replacement for Judas. But as they sought the replacement for Judas, they had criteria that had to be met. And the main criteria that had to be met was that this replacement had to be someone who was, according to Acts chapter 1 and verse 22, one who was with us the whole time, who can be a witness with us of his resurrection. Nobody can do that today. Nobody has been with Jesus the whole time. So that they can testify of his resurrection. That's why there are no more apostles today. When the apostle Paul was defending his own apostolic mission. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1. He asked, am I not an apostle? And then the next thing he says is this. Have I not seen the risen Lord? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. Paul said, again, defending his apostleship. Let me just stop there just as a brief aside. Ever notice how many times in reading the letters of Paul he has to defend himself? He's defending himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. And he says, I am not in the least inferior to the so-called super apostles. The signs that mark an apostle were done before you. Notice that phrase, signs that mark an apostle. If everybody does these signs, they can't mark an apostle, can they? Then in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14, Revelation 21, 14, where the apostle John is given a vision of the heavenly city and he's given a description of the dimensions of the city. He's told that the city has 12 foundations. And then verse 14 tells us on which are written the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. 
So God has given us his truth. He's revealed that truth to us in his word. And that was given to us by his spirit. And so we saw myth number one is this. That the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us. That's a myth. It's wrong. The Holy Spirit revealed truth to the apostles. And it's been given to us. Secondly, in your outline. The Spirit's work is known by the Word. We saw in the second message in this series that the Spirit's, we know the Spirit's work by its effects, by what it does. The Spirit leads. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13 says, as many as who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. And so the Holy Spirit leads. And he leads us, according to Romans chapter 8, into assurance that we are his and moves us to intimacy in our relationship with God, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. So the Holy Spirit does that. The Bible tells us he does that. But how do we know it's the Spirit's work? We know it's the Spirit's work because the Scripture says. Hear this. The only way I know the Spirit has done something is when the Scripture tells me that's what the Spirit does. When someone gets saved, when someone is born again, when someone is given spiritual life, the Bible tells us that comes by the Holy Spirit. I know that the Spirit does that. But when I just get an impression about something, I just sort of have an oomph that this is what I should do. Let me caution you, friends, against saying the Spirit led me Or the Spirit told me. You only know what the Spirit does because the Spirit tells you in the word that the Spirit has given what He does. We know how He works from God's word. So the second myth that we saw is that the Spirit's work can be known apart from the word. And then I say in your outline, the Spirit illumines our minds to the Word of God. Notice the Spirit illumines our minds. So our thinking is involved in the process of the Spirit's work. Our minds are not bypassed. God's work in our lives is not a mystical process. That's what mysticism is. Mysticism is bypassing the mind. The Bible directly refutes that. The Bible directly refutes, as I'm going to quote for you momentarily, refutes the idea that God the Holy Spirit just sort of grabs you, just sort of zaps you, and involuntarily moves you to do something. The Spirit works, but the Spirit works through our mind, using the Word of God in order to instruct us and then motivate us to carry out what the Word says. But He uses our minds in that entire process. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is a third of three chapters starting in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 that deal with the work of the Holy Spirit. It's an entire chapter about the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul's writing it to people who apparently had this mystical view that the Holy Spirit just sort of zaps you often in the midst of a church service. And so when the Holy Spirit zaps you, as I saw when I grew up as a Pentecostal kid, then somebody would just stand up and they would start doing whatever it was the Spirit was supposedly compelling them to do. 
And Paul says, no, you don't do that. God's a God of order, he says in 1 Corinthians 14. And so when you speak, let it be orderly. Well, how can it be orderly if the Spirit just grabs me? How can I tell the Spirit to only grab one at a time? Here's how. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 32. 1 Corinthians 14, 32. Quote, The Spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. The Spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. That means the Holy Spirit does not involuntarily grab you. You actually have a choice in the matter. You're actually involved in the matter. Further, in that same chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says, I will sing with the Spirit, but I will sing with my understanding also. Some translations say, I will sing with my mind also. He says, I will pray with the Spirit, but I will pray with the understanding also. So here's the myth that needs to be exploded. That the Holy Spirit bypasses the mind. God made the mind and he uses the mind in instructing and in growing his people. And then I say in your outline, spirits are described in it. Spirits are described in the word. Now, when I say spirits, I'm talking about both good and evil spirits. Good spirits we normally call angels, but the truth is demons are evil angels. But both of them are part of the spiritual realm, good and evil, and they are described in God's word. And the fact that there is this angelic host that God uses to do his bidding upon God's command is given to us in Scripture. We saw that a few weeks ago. And that Satan has emissaries that he uses to do his bidding that we call demons is also taught in Scripture. So both of those are described in Scripture. But hear this. There's no way for you to identify one. There's no way for you to know that an angel is in your presence. There's no way for you to know that an angel did X or Y or Z. The Bible simply describes that it happens. And what we should do is thank God that he is in control of the spirit realm and that he is at work in that every moment of every day. I've heard people identify angels and demons. They identify something good that happened to them and that was an angel that did. There's no way to know that. But you just thank God that he did it. Whatever means that God used to accomplish it. The myth then is that angels, whether good or evil, can be recognized. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13 that angels come unawares. You have no way to know what they are. And then today in this final message, I sought to communicate, and last week, and two weeks ago. Today's a continuation of two weeks ago, and I've sought to communicate this final myth, and that is that spiritual warfare is spectacular. 
spiritual warfare is actually quite mundane. The armor that you take up in Ephesians chapter 6, that's how Paul describes that the war takes place. It's not by power encounters. It's not by screaming at demons. It's not by casting them out. It's not by binding and loosing them. It's by appropriating this armor that God makes available to us. Hear this, friends. Our God gives us everything we need. And when in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, it says to put on the full armor of God, the Greek word for full there in full armor is panoplion. And it's, we get our English word panoply from it. And it's why the songwriter said this, soldiers of Christ arise and put your armor on. Strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal son. Stand then in his great might with all his strength endued and take to arm you for the fight the panoply of God. That having all things done and all of your conflicts past, ye may or come through Christ alone and stand entire at last. Your take-home truth is this. In spiritual warfare... God wins. And you know what that means? It means we do too. Let's pray. Our warrior God, we thank you for going to battle for us. We thank you that you have defeated Satan. We are fighting now and struggling in battles, the end of which is secure. The war has been won, though the battle rages. So we thank you for defeating Satan and his minions and his purposes in our lives. So Lord, because of that, help us to be people who do not give the devil more than his due. That in our thinking and in our, in our living, that we do not in effect, make him equal to you. Oh, the blasphemy of it. You are the sovereign God and you made all things, including Satan. And so Lord, help us to take great security in knowing that we are in your hand and that you have determined to move us from where we are in our walk with you to your predetermined outcome of finally being glorified and becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no one and no thing whether angels or demons, whether height nor depth, nor any power, nor anything else in all creation that can thwart the work of our God in the lives of his people. So Lord, help us to stand on that, to thank you for your word, to read your word, appropriate your word, which is the sword of the Spirit. And as a result of that, may we go forward secure in who we are, secure in what you are doing in our lives, and faithful in our service of bringing glory to you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.